A decade ago, the Federal Reserve implemented what is known today as CCAR as part of the stress testing framework to assess and regulate capital sufficiency at large bank holding companies. A new study just released by SIFMA analyzes CCAR's approach to the trading book. It identifies areas needing critical revision to ensure the credibility and appropriateness of aspects of the framework that have not been revised since implemented and may not reflect market reality. In the latest episode of SIFMA's podcast series, SIFMA President and CEO Ken Benson hosts a discussion on the paper's analysis and findings. Welcome to the latest edition of SIFMA's ongoing podcast series. This is a series of podcasts that we do on major policy issues that SIFMA's engaged with. I'm Ken Benson, President and CEO of SIFMA, and joining me today are my colleagues Joe Seidel, who's SIFMA's Chief Operating Officer, Carter McDowell, who's Managing Director and Associate uh, General Counsel, and Corianne Stephenson, who's a Senior Advisor to SIFMA. And we're here to talk about the current framework for stress testing and potential avenues uh, for improvement. So why don't we go ahead and get started? Uh, SIFMA recently issued a study which analyzes the shortfalls of the current approaches to stress testing, specifically the global market shock and the large counterparty default components of the, comp- of the Comprehensive Capital Assessment Review, known as CCAR. Before we dive into the findings of the paper, let's take a step back. What are the fundamental problems of the current approach in practical terms? So stress testing has been a function of the uh, Federal Reserve Supervisory Playbook for the last 10 years. Um, over that time, it is we've seen significant development. We've seen certainly significant evolution of the banks and the affected uh, parties in terms of how they, they deal with CCAR and, and stress testing. Uh, we've seen improvements across the board in risk management practices and, and other elements of the supervisory uh, regime. Um, one of, uh, and we've seen much greater transparency, but part of the problem right now with the stress testing regime that all of that we've seen, all of the development, all of the evolution has, ha- has come on the credit book side of the equation. Um, we have much greater transparency. We have loss rates. We have other items that are regularly published. Uh, there is a lot of interaction, there's a lot of give and take, and so we think that's, that has been a very, very successful enterprise on the credit book side. However, in doing that over the past 10 years, they've done very, very little, and there's been very little focus on the trading book side, the, the area that affects capital markets the most, the area which in many ways continues to be a continuing source of volatility in the stress testing regime. And we think after 10 years, we think there are some various flaws in it, particularly in terms of a, the one-size-fits-all approach it takes to trading activities, where it in many ways uh, treats what are, are typically um, very low-risk trading activities the same way as, as other trading activities, and, and in that way uh, comes up with, with uh, what seems to be sort of misspecified models and, and misspecified uh, misallocation of risk at firms based on 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 an over uh, estimation in some areas and and a, a failure to recognize other areas. Can I just add? Prior to the financial crisis, most of bank regulation was backward looking. Banks were reporting what they were doing on a quarterly basis. The regulations were looking at what had happened in the system. And one of the things stress testing is designed to do is be a forward looking tool in the toolbox so that People are trying to um, really hazard what might happen um, in the future on various types of different scenarios. And so we do think it's a good addition to the toolbox that firms be thinking in terms of this 
yeah. this type I, of action. I think I think CIPA is very very supportive of the notion of uh, stress testing. Um, I think just in the capital market space and the trading book space, we think it can just be done better and it can more accurately measure risk in those areas, and out of that create a much more um, much more integrity in the model, much more resiliency in the model. Um, and a much better application and use of capital through having a, a more risk-focused uh, sensitivity within their trading book model, similar to what they already have in the credit book side. So before getting into the details of the study, um, you know, and, and, and Joe, you talked a little bit about this, you know, we're 10 years into CCAR and stress testing, it's been through various iterations. Uh, you know, there's been discussion around, uh, and in fact, the, the, the Federal Reserve is, is looking at potential changes to CCAR with respect to the credit book, but uh, is why now with respect to looking at GMS and, and, and LCD? Is this something that we feel is not getting the look that it should compared to the credit book? Yeah, we, we it, it's never uh, it's never really had the same focus. Um, and so I think now is, is a particularly good time for it because I think in, in many ways the credit book evolution has stabilized and I think is generally viewed in uh, uh, viewed as being a relatively stable system right now where I don't think you have you have much more volatility potential on the trading book side. And I think also um, the Fed is going to be moving into sort of a continuous CCAR through the stress capital buffer where they will be using the, the, the CCAR results as part of the annual sort of supervision of a firm in a continuous basis. And out of that, uh, we would probably argue that it's even more important, quite frankly, to proper, properly measure the risk and more accurately reflect uh, market circumstances in terms of uh, measuring and, and uh, managing uh, trading risk, market risk. Yeah, I mean, I'd, I'd add, you know, based upon many of SIFMA's own studies, we've seen, you know, contraction in certain areas with respect to inventories. Uh, obviously, there are other factors at play, things like the Volcker rule and other capital rules. But, but uh, you know, capital markets activities have been under a lot of pressure uh, because of the rules. And, and it, it would certainly seem that part of that is the CCAR impact. And that's certainly what firms report, uh, report to us. Maybe let's turn to the study. Um, and, and uh, you know, with, with the, you know, what was the fundamental question uh, in, in the analysis and, and what are the results? What, what, what were we trying to answer? Maybe, I, maybe I'll turn to Corey, uh, who was day-to-day -day on the study. Sure. Um, we really had three um, objectives. One was to really take a look at the severity and plausibility um, and the stability of the assumptions that underline uh, the global ma um, market shock. Um, we also wanted to take a look at the assumptions that the Fed um, uh, implements as part of their calibration and correlation analysis. Um, and lastly, we wanted to take a look at what, were the, what was the impact of using the global market shock in order to um, perform the large counterparty default. So those were our three areas which we really focused on. And we tried to perform another a number of historical and uh, quantitative studies in order to back up our hypothesis. Um, from an outcomes perspective, uh, we found that the global market shocks individually that were employed uh, were often, in many cases, far more severe uh, than what uh, one had experienced, what the market had experienced post-war. 
uh, we found that some of their correlation and calibration assumptions, again, uh, didn't sort of meet this plausible, severe but plausible standard that the Fed uses to guide their um, the, the development of their uh, global market and LCD uh, components. Uh, lastly, we found that when we thought about um, when we thought about the large uh, counterparty default, that the use of the GMS factors really misaligned the risk of a large counterparty default uh, with the uh, real outcome, what one would find when you saw that type of default. Um, we did find a number of other um, from outside of the quantitative side, and maybe Carter, you want to pick those up? Yeah, so one of the things we were worried about is a lot of double counting. So there are, um, since the crisis, there have been hundreds of rule changes. A number of those rules also try to figure out what the, um, the various, to prepare banks for various shocks. And then you build into um, the stress testing, looking at those same shocks. So for example, we found in a couple of areas where um, the, the loss that you're required to take under the stress testing is actually greater than the value of the asset that's on the bank's books. And we just don't think that that's appropriate, that you know you can't really lose more than what you've got invested in an asset. I wanna get come in and talk a little bit about uh, discussion around transparency, but before I do, um, how do, how do you think that how do you think the Fed ended up where they did on this? I mean, obviously, you know, to be fair, uh, you know, regulators, policymakers, are particularly during the time of the crisis, were having to manufacture tools to to address the situation uh, on the on the run and and give them credit for working you know as hard as they did to do that. But you know, is, is this something where you know? At the time, they didn't have the benefit of, of having uh, ready data and the like and, and, and be able to look at it. And, and now are we able to sort of empirically look back and show, you know, in fact, you know, to your point, Corey, looking at you know, post-war trading market data across multiple asset classes doesn't necessarily match up to what the, the scenarios that are being put in place. Right. So I think one of the things, um, one of the components of uh, CCAR is a PPNR, so the um, ability to estimate your revenues and expenses, so pre-provision net revenue, estimating that over the nine-quarter period. We, at the Federal Reserve, they knew back during the time of the crisis, or when they did the first stress test, SCAP, that the PPNR methodologies, as well as data, was really, really nascent. And so they were concerned that it would not um, result in something that was defensible, particularly on the market side. So they came up with the idea of doing this one-time global market shock. Uh, that's why part of it is a double count, because firms have to do this PPNR, um, as well as certain select population have to also do the global market shock and the large counterparty default. Because there's a conflict in the approaches, some firms, the large firms that are subject to the GMS LCD, they have to actually consider and take reserve capital for the losses that come as a result of the GMS and LDC, as well as the losses that are estimated for the PPNR um, cycle. Uh, so that's definitely something that our members are concerned about and feel that that's something that the regulators should be able to address because it's a, a fault of the design. Um, I think over the past 10 years, there's been great advances in PPNR modeling, both for the types of activities that occur 
more on the credit side, so fee and et cetera, that type of um, uh, information, as well as on the capital market side. So where firms or the Fed more likely should feel comfortable moving towards this PPNR approach and maybe letting the GMS LCD go. Importantly, the second largest sources of risk is actually comes out of the GMS. So it is one of the biggest loss attractor when they go through the test then maybe the first one may be depending on the type of banks could be uh, um, residential real estate or it could be commercial loans but the second one is usually gms and and the sweet spot for the fed is always on the credit side right i mean that's where the expertise of the agency that that is truly uh, uh where they have tremendous expertise and i think that just the the nature of it over the 10 years is we've seen just continual development and improvement on that side that hasn't necessarily translated to the same uh, same application on the capital market side? I mean, you know, that's not dissimilar, for instance, of looking at things like, you know, again, well-intentioned, but you know, leverage ratio, if leverage ratio becomes a binding constraint, uh, it treats all assets equally uh, when we know all assets don't perform equally uh, based upon, you know, both, both product characteristic and risk characteristic. So the, now let me, let me switch to transparency because the paper uh, stresses the need to inject more transparency into the process. Uh, you know why? Why is this important? Uh, and and why you know why is this important to how the Fed conducts the stress test and how how our members manage uh, you know their capital? You know, uh, Governor Quarles, I think, has regularly when he speaks on on these issues publicly, always talks about the merits of transparency, transparency, simplicity, uh, and uh, in that, I think he they they recognize and he recognizes the improvement that can be done from public input that areas where uh, people, whether it be academics, whether it be firms, whether it be uh, any number of interested parties feel there are problems or issues within the stress test. He has, has commented how the increasing transparency has been hugely beneficial uh, to the Fed. I think that's that's the good news. The, the, the only, I guess, caveat we would have is that it just hasn't really happened here. And so we think all of the things that, that are regularly discussed by he and others at the Fed um, in terms of the benefits of transparency, about the improvements that we've seen on the credit book side, um, again, I think are equally applicable here, where that level of expertise can actually improve their uh, knowledge internally and, and help them understand risk better, as well as, quite frankly, educate the firms in managing their risk. Um, and tying it much closer to historical experience, much more closer to the view that people uh, have to deal with uh, every day in the markets, uh, both on, on ordinary course of business as well as in, in times of stress. I think one of the big um, factors also is transparency was stressed during the first um, SCAP uh, as a part to let the public feel confident in the banking system. So again, the least the, the if you have not enough transparency, the public can't understand how the results differ between different organizations, and therefore aren't able to discern maybe if they want to invest in the bank, they want to, you know, um, purchase bonds or equity, et cetera, that they're not able to do that in a clear way. What other revisions uh, to the GMS and LCD components does the study? Uh, can I jump in it just from a sort of 10,000 foot level before we get granular on this? I think what we're proposing for stress testing is in line with what the Fed is doing in a whole host of regulatory areas. 
which is trying to tailor the test based on 10 years of experience that we've now got with the data. And so we're starting to see where there are problems. So we see them doing tailoring in response to the CRAPO legislation, whether it be for domestic or foreign banking organizations. We see them taking a, you know, another look at what they do in the resolution area, et cetera. And so they're trying to do the same thing here with stress testing, right? Think, we think it's time that they do think about it. So in, t in terms of other, th other things also, though, that, that need to be improved, I think some of the low-hanging fruit is the notion of having charges that actually exceed the asset values of a, 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 a reflected on the books of the bank. That seems a bit absurd um, from a common sense point of view. Also in the area of intangibles, uh, essentially uh, deducting intangibles based on pre-stress, uh, the pre-stress balance sheet as opposed to the post-stress balance sheet would again seem uh, matching them up in, in a similar way would seem to be again sort of the low hanging fruit uh, right away. I think more broadly speaking, I think having a better understanding of the risk and asset classes, very similar to what they do on the credit book side in terms of the risk-based capital proposals. Um, yeah, having a, a better understanding of uh, uh, what the risks are and, and not looking at capital markets monolithically, but looking at differences between equities and government securities and agency securities and leverage loans and high yield, that each of these are very different markets and shouldn't be handled um, the same, uh, I think would be a, a, a good starting point. So all of that, uh, you know, we think could be generated through greater transparency and the learning curve, the iterative learning curve over time um, to improve their understanding and, and whether it's to improve, continue to improve the PPNR in those areas or uh, to, to improve the GMS or, or other areas where we see the same sort of behavior toward or, or cautionary treatment of capital markets activities in, in other parts of the Fed supervisory playbook. And this, you know, with all this, we talked, Corey, you talked a little bit about this in the case of transparency, but, you know, these other other ideas, you know, how would you see those uh, improving the reliability uh, or the outcomes of the test? So one of the things that we noted um, uh, about development of one side of the CCAR, i.e. on the credit side versus what's going on in GMS and LCD, is there, as Joe mentioned earlier, a lot more push for transparency and controls around how they size and calibrate the level of severity with regards to the unemployment rate and the home price index. Both of those are two factors that drive the severity on the credit side. Um, we're hoping as a result of the study, because we do point that out, that it's very difficult um, without those uh, sort of controls, some sort of metric to judge the and calibrate the severity, that you can actually have some ability to prevent unintended volatility, uh, which the Fed is very worried about because it makes it difficult for firms to actually do capital planning. Um, I also think a metric would be helpful to really tie the degree of severity to the outcomes versus what has been to date seems very arbitrary um, sort of uh, calibration setting. So, in, in, in you know the uh, uh, 
the paper talks about guardrails. So you talk about the guardrails, yeah. as you were mentioning, with respect to the HPI uh, or, or unemployment. And would that mean uh, similarly guardrails in terms related to credit spreads, stress credit spreads and, exactly. and things like that? So having some sense of how I'm going to think about two things. One is individual factor shock. So putting some sort of limits about whether it's a tie. And I mean, you, they can be very creative about how they do that. And there's probably a number of ways to do it. But doing something that discerns um, the different liquidity and um, uh, price stability of different asset classes. Um, I also think the other thing is they need some metrics that talk about calibration, uh, um, excuse me, correlation. Because one of the things that we noted underlying this whole approach is that there's often an assumption of almost perfect or near perfect correlation that everything goes bad at once. And we all know as savvy market participants that when, you know, your S&P 500, you know, g gets under fire that you see, you know, there's the, the, the rally in the bond market. Exactly. And that negative correlation is part of our marketplace. And respecting that and understanding that, despite it being a stress test, having some sense about that will we'll make an output that I think for those firms is much more useful about informing about concentrations and risk, risk concentrations, asset concentrations, et cetera. Right. So before, before we wrap up, uh, you know, you know, having now, uh, having now uh, published this paper, what are the next steps? What, 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 what do we plan to do at SIFMA with this and, and engaging with policymakers or, or the like? I think the plan is, uh, uh, post-release will be to have relatively active engagement uh, with the Fed, the Fed staff, other agencies who are, are interested parties, including probably the SEC, and uh, have hopefully a, a very a, a data-enriched, uh, data-supported focus on things that, that if the uh, process was open to more transparency, areas that they should look at and areas that they should be actively considering um, before or simultaneously with them going into this stress capital buffer and continually essentially applying CCAR across the course of the year. So given the, the, the data-driven input we're giving here, we're hoping that uh, um, that will be appreciated and then form the basis of, of doing their independent verifications and, and very active uh, constructive engagement um, to modify the stress tests to hopefully uh, better and more accurately measure risk and, and then manage it accordingly, both in the PPNR side as well as in the GMS side and LCD side. Um, and hope at the end of the day, not to throw out the stress test, but but to really try to improve it for everybody. Ed, the, the firms are looking to have the stress test that's conducted by the Fed be something that they can factor into their own risk management procedures that they use on a um, business as usual um, basis. You know, they have to manage these risks day in and day out. And right now, the Fed stress test is a test that they go through that they're not getting a lot of usefulness out of um, because they see all of these distortions that are taking place in the results. Carter, Corey, Joe, thank you all very much. Thank you.